Integrity is something that is uh, talked about a lot these days, almost a sort of a theoretical kind of thing. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I had subscribed to a News Digest sort of thing um, from Yahoo, and I think about two or three weeks straight, it's been about which celebrity has been unfaithful to their spouse or significant other, which politician was caught in some scheme or another, which famous person was lying about something or other. And uh, that's uh, <laughs> the general trend if you listen to the news or, or read news articles. In contrast, I was talking with Alberta, and her mom used to write for the, the hometown paper and uh, down where she grew up. And um, there were stories like how Alberta's dad killed a rattlesnake and somebody from town came to pick it up to have it for supper and just sort of things like that, just normal everyday occurrences. But getting back to the bad streak of news in our culture today, what the majority of news stories show is that people lack integrity. And when we look at Psalm 26, we see the structure in the psalm as something that starts and ends with this idea of integrity. We see it in verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And then verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. And we've seen this before in some other psalms, and I don't know how good of a job I've done explaining this kind of structure, but in certain psalms it seems to be very clearly that there's sort of an ascending sort of idea and then a descending sort of idea. An idea in the middle seems to be the thing that the psalmist wants to emphasize. So what is the thing that I think David is emphasizing here in Psalm 26? I think the thing that he is emphasizing is in verse 7, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. But he starts out with this plea, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. The problem that we run into in the news stories that I alluded to, or sometimes in our own lives, is when we come to that point where there's some kind of question, we're hesitant because we're not sure if we have the integrity that is required to maintain a defense that has no backing down. So, for example, um, if someone were to accuse you of, of stealing, and you say, well, I don't steal, and then you start thinking, this is coming up here shortly, start thinking with tax time, you know what, I got paid under the table a lot last year, and I didn't pay my taxes. Well, that's in one sense a form of stealing. And so then when you go and you, you're ready to say, I, don't, I would never do that, something starts to kick in. You say, well, I'm not sure that I can confidently say that. I'm not sure that I've walked in integrity. Now, certainly I don't think David is talking about complete perfection because none of us live up to that standard. Um, with the kids in the Bible class today, we were looking at the book of Galatians. And Paul makes this extended argument in the book of Galatians, and he says something along the lines of, you Galatians are being foolish. You're trying to go back to the Old Testament law, 
that no one in Israel could keep. So why would you want to go back to that which condemns you? The law condemns us. God's character condemns us, not only because we do things God says not to do, but also because we don't live up to the things that God says to do. What David, I think, is getting at is not in every instance do we avoid sin, because the only one who ever did that perfectly was Christ. But what is the general pattern of our lives? And when we're called on the carpet for something or other, can we say confidently, justify me, vindicate me, defend me, because I've walked and lived with integrity? Part of that is said in a parallel fashion at the end of verse 1, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. It's one of those phrases that you read it and you say, yeah, yeah, I think that's true of me. And then it's like some of the hymns that we sing. We can sing them just sort of on autopilot, but then when we really think about the words, we're like, wait a minute. Like a song that says something like, there's no one else that I love more than you, God. And again, our, our, our consciences accuse us to some extent because we realize there's a lot of times when we love other things more than God. So again, I don't think that this is a statement of absolute perfection, never doubting, never questioning, never wavering. But again, the overall pattern of David's life was that he was a man of God who trusted in God. He trusted in God when he needed help with the bear and the lion that attacked the sheep. He trusted in God when he had to face Goliath. He trusted in God when he was running from Saul. He trusted in God for most of his reign as king. And so if that is true, if we have a relationship with God that can be described, broadly speaking, as one of integrity and one of steadfast trust in God, then we can do what he says to do in verse 2. We can call to God and say, Examine me and try me, test my mind and my heart. I think the parallel is at the end of verse 11, redeem me and be gracious to me. So he starts out with, uh, test me, and then he sort of concludes with, having tested me, deliver me, help me, paralleling what he says as well in verse 1. And then what does he say? For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. God's loving kindness is this idea we see over and over again in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. God has covenant loyalty with His people. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it could be translated covenant loyalty. All of those sorts of ideas are wrapped up in this word. God has made a promise. God has a relationship with His people. God will keep that promise. God will not forget His people that He knows. David is aware of that. And because he has that relationship with God, what does he do? It says, I have walked in your truth. If we don't really know God, why should we obey Him? But on the other hand, as it says in 1 John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which John also said in his gospel, quoting the words of Jesus. So, if we know God and we have an awareness of the promises that He's made to us, both positive and negative, then we'll walk in His truth. Think back to Deuteronomy when the children of Israel were standing before the mountain and they were quoting out the blessings and the curses that would come on them if they obeyed God 
or if they disobeyed God. Sometimes we think about God's faithfulness and we only think about it in terms that make us feel good. God will always be there for me. But God's character is such that not only will He keep His promises to care for His people and all those sorts of things, but also He'll keep His promises if we sin that there will be consequences. We will sow what we reap. We will reap what we sow. I said it backwards. So, David says, Your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Verse 4, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So this idea of sitting with deceitful men, going with pretenders, is the idea of these are the people that are his companions. Now, we know from other places in Scripture, Jesus ate with sinners, those sorts of things. But there's a difference between having a relationship with someone who doesn't know God for the purposes of trying to give the gospel to them and having a relationship with someone who doesn't know God as your best friend, as your closest companion, as someone who's having a huge influence on your life. We can and should have genuine relationships with people who don't know God. The nature of those relationships should always be different from the fellowship that we have with God's people. He says, nor will I go with pretenders. So that parallels the idea of those who are deceitful, but it's the idea of those who are hypocrites. And there are people who don't know God, who seem good in many respects, but the reality is all of us apart from God live selfishly, live sinfully, and David said, those people are not going to be my closest companions. When he said, I hate the assembly of evildoers, will not sit with the wicked, I think he's saying again, there are not a lot of places that in and of themselves are wicked places. Um, can you encounter bad things in many places? Yes. But, you know, as a general rule, something like a grocery store is not morally wrong to go to, even though you may run into a lot of lost people there. But what David is saying is, I'm not going to be gathered with them when they are gathered to do evil. I think he's making a contrast here in verse 5 with what he says in verse 8. Verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. Verse 8, I love the habitation of your house. It's almost like there's two places of worship. There's the one where the people who hate God are gathered for their wicked schemes, whether it be a formal pagan religion sort of idea or just simply the fact of we gather with other people and we plot evil. And then on the other hand, the contrast is being gathered in God's house, being with God and his people. So David says, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. And so that sort of, again, ties in with verse 4. I don't sit with deceitful men. I will not sit with the wicked. So again, he's, he's just stressing this idea. There's people that will not be my closest companions. There's people that I will not love as my closest friends. There's people that whose actions I can even be described as hating because they're God's enemies. In contrast, he says, I will wash my hands in innocence 
and I will go about your altar, O Lord. I will wash my hands in innocence, I will go about your altar, O Lord. This idea of, of, of washing hands is something that sometimes we think washing of hands is sort of like wash your hands so you don't get sick. I think what David has in mind is more the idea of ceremonial cleansing. Because if people were going to go into God's presence, there was a whole set of regulations and rules they had to follow in the Old Testament according to the Mosaic system. And so David is saying, I'm going to keep the requirements of your law. I'm going to approach your altar. I'm going to be gathered to your presence. All of these things, I think, are building to verse 7. Vindicate me. I've lived in this way. Test me. Here's what you'll find. I've walked in your truth. Here's what I don't do. Fellowship with evil men. Here's what I do positively. I wash my hands in innocence so I can come in your presence. Why? That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. Why is it so significant that David has integrity, that all these things that he has said leading up to this are true? Because... If he had not walked in integrity, if he does not have a relationship with God where he trusts in God without wavering, if he is fearful of what God will find if he examines him, if he has fellowship with the wicked, if he doesn't follow God's law, he cannot come before God and praise God and declare all his wonders, at least with any sort of genuineness, and right heart before God, right? If you are not following after God wholeheartedly, there's a very real sense in which it's well nigh impossible for you to gather and worship God well. You come before, you come to church, and you have in your heart greed or anger or hatred for a fellow person, or any of these sorts of things, and you don't deal with that, it's difficult, if not impossible, for you to worship God well. So David says, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted you without wavering. Examine me. I remember my relationship with you, so I have walked in your truth. I have not had fellowship with wicked people, I've followed the requirements of your law with the end result, the goal, that I can worship you rightly. And then he starts the, the descent back through some of these same ideas. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He had to wash his hands in innocence so he could approach the altar, and now it's as though he's stepping away, he's looking at God's house, and he's saying, I love this place, not because... The temple defined God. We saw that from Acts 17 this last Sunday. The temple, God doesn't need the temple. God didn't need the tabernacle. In David's case, that's what he would have been looking at. God didn't need those things to be any more God than he already was. And yet, it was the visible representation of God's presence among his people. So why did David say he loved that place? Because... God was visibly present among his people there. That was the place where God's glory was evident. 
God's glory was evident in such a way that it was, it was walled off from the people. There were all these layers of separation between God and the people because if God fully revealed His glory, they would be struck down. Think of Moses. He goes up on the mountain. He just get, catches a glimpse of God. He has to wear a veil over his face for many days until the, the echo of God's glory wears off his face. His, his face was shining from just that brief glimpse of God's presence. And so God is, in a sense, sort of walled off from the people in the tabernacle, and yet it's the place where His glory dwells. And so David says, Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed. Why does he say, don't take me away with them? Because he anticipates that God's judgment is going to fall on those people, which is why he has said in verses 4 and 5, these are not my friends, my closest companions. These are not the people that I love because I know that they are under your wrath. I cannot love what you hate. Again, there's this very, um, there's this tension that makes us uncomfortable in the Old Testament. It was Israel, and then there was a line, and there was everybody else. Today, we look at that and it makes us uncomfortable. We start thinking about concepts like, like racism or being bigoted or those sorts of things. But the reason God walled off His people from the surrounding nations, at least in terms of their daily practice, was because God wanted His people to be separated from the idolatry of the nations so that they could be an example to the nations around them. And what did they do over and over again? They ignored that wall. They went and interspersed among the nations through marriage and other relationships. They adopted the idolatrous practices of all these people around them. But David here has an awareness that God doesn't tolerate that, that God's going to punish that because... He says, don't take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed. Which we might say is ironic for David to be saying, don't take my life away with men of bloodshed, because wasn't David a, a warrior? Hadn't he killed lots of people, even at an early age? And yet, notice the contrast. And it's not just those who have shed blood for any reason. It is in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. The idea is this. It's not a soldier sent out to fight a battle. It's a robber, an assassin. Someone has paid this person to go take someone's life without good cause, without justice. David says those people will be under God's judgment. Don't let me be judged with them because I haven't lived among them and with them as my closest friends. I haven't lived like them. It's interesting to note, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, whose right hand is full of bribes. Look back to verse 6, I shall wash my hands in innocence. There's a sense in which he's saying, even though David was a warrior and had blood on his hands, there was a very real sense in which he was able to cleanse his hands in God's presence through the requirements of the law and approach God rightly in a way that these people who had also taken life but unjustly and unrepentantly and all these other sorts of things, they could not come in God's presence. Instead, they were under God's wrath. And then he comes to verse 11. He says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. So verse 1 looks backward. 
I have walked in my integrity. And verse 11 looks forward, I shall walk in my integrity. But it sort of bookends this whole passage, this idea of integrity. Again, that there is not a valid basis that someone can condemn me about the thing that I'm accused of. We should not live in such a way that our primary thought is, what will people think of me? Because we will often go wrong. And yet there's a real sense in which we should not live in a way that we hide what we are doing um, and are always afraid of being found out. And I think that that's what David is talking about. I've lived in a way where what people see matches up with what the way that I live. I have done that, and I will do that. And what's his confidence? Just as he trusted in God without wavering, he is also confident that my foot stands on a level place in the congregations I shall bless the Lord. And that goes back, I think, to the idea of verse 7. This, this uh, standing on a level place. Vindicate me, O God. I have walked in my integrity. I can confidently say I will keep walking in integrity. My footing is secure. We just come through several months of ice and snow. When you step on a sheet of ice and your foot starts to go out from under you, when you stand on a hillside and the rocks are uncertain and you start to fall down, you're not in a place of being secure and being confident. David, in contrast, could say, because of his relationship with God, because of his integrity, my foot is on a level place. I am secure. I am not afraid. I know that God is with me. But again, he brings it back to this idea that he said in verse 7, in the congregations I shall bless the Lord. Verse 7, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. Why should we live a life of integrity? So that we can praise God wholeheartedly. And so that we can stand confidently when we are accused because we know that there is not a valid basis for, the, for being accused that way. So, how can we live a life of integrity? If there is some specific sin that we are struggling with, the Bible says in a number of places, put off that sin and put on following Christ. Stop stealing, start working so you can give. Stop being angry without cause, start showing love to other people. Stop um, being envious and covetous, and again, love and serve others around you. There's, there's all of these examples. And we, and we look at it and we say, well, that seems easy enough. I put off one bad habit and I start at one good, good habit. But the transformation by which God accomplishes this in our lives is not just, uh, I change what I'm doing on the outside and now I'm doing something different on the outside. It's something that has to affect all of who we are. Not just our outward behaviors, but our thoughts, what we want, and the choices that we make that lead to those outward behaviors. So sometimes we go at it the wrong way. We say, well, I'm just going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing this. But we still have the same patterns of thinking. Going back to the idea of stealing. If, I, if my heart is full of thoughts that I deserve better than I have, stealing is going to come really easy. If my heart is full of I want this thing instead of what I have, 
again, it's going to be very easy for me to pursue something that's not mine in the wrong way. And then those things are going to lead to, and now I choose to do things that get me what I want and get me what I'm thinking about. Maybe it's not stealing. Maybe it's um, something else. Maybe it's something like anger. You say, I should get to do whatever I want whenever I want. I want to do this right now. And someone says, no, that produces that outward response. I get upset. I, I want my own way. Maybe it's laziness. I shouldn't have to work right now. I've earned the right not to work right now. I want to rest right now. Something comes up and, I, and I'm not able to do what I want to do, what I think I deserve. Again, I'm going to have a sinful response. And so there has to be this transformation of our thinking, of our hearts, of our wills for us to walk in the sort of integrity that David is talking about. Walk in integrity so that you can praise God with a clear conscience and with a whole heart. As we go to our time of prayer, um, see what things we need to add to the prayer sheet.